you ask coaches in the book, and I again, I, I can't exactly remember how you phrased it, but you know going into a training session. So you've planned your session, and you know that probably a couple of things are going to go wrong. You know, <clears throat> and, and you talk about having a plan for the response. So that's pretty interesting because I, I'm just going to say I doubt many coaches yeah. plan response about things that they've predicted will go wrong with the session. Yeah. We call that idea planning for error. <clears throat> and I think it's one of the most important things to do to make sure, you know, we ask the, the question is John Wooden describes coaching as and teaching as knowing the difference between I taught it and they learned it. <clears throat> and that's the biggest challenge of any, any teaching or coaching environment. How do I get better first at spotting that gap? Well, there's a ton of cognitive science on perception for, for coaches and you're more likely to see what you expect. And so if I practice anticipating the things that might go wrong, I'm more likely to see them if they do go wrong. Well, first of all, I'm more likely to presume that something will go wrong as opposed to, oh, I'll just teach this and all the guys will get it and then we'll have it for Saturday, which is, you know, if you're teaching something challenging, that's just patently unrealistic. So now I'm like expecting and looking for things that might go wrong because I've, I've thought about the fact that they might happen and I've actually articulated, <clears throat> I've actually articulated some of them in my head so that I'm again, more likely to see them. And then if I'm more likely, if I'm, if I see them, I'm more likely to take action. If I thought about, well, what would I do if this happened? So, you know, you asked earlier about the pro license course. I had the coaches in a, in a course with professional coaches do this activity and then share what sort of errors they anticipated. And one of the ones I remember was, it was a coach who was working on defending crosses. And he said, we're really strong at defending the first cross. But if I had to anticipate an error, I would say one error is we lose, uh, some of our guys lose sight of their man after the first cross. And if the ball comes back in quickly, we're exposed. <clears throat> and two, if a guy is really athletic, um, we might fail to be able to like disrupt his run up. And so he might be able to just beat us up, beat us on sheer athleticism. Mm. So I thought those were really insightful, right? Cause now it just shapes what you're gonna be looking for and what the coach did was he decided that if he was watching and he saw guys losing contact with their man after the first cross, he was just going to station an assistant coach on the far sideline and have him just with a second ball, just pelt across back in. Right. So now he's got a, he's got, he's designed the activity for a response to the situation. Um, and, you know, then he, he also, you know, then he was, um, had a similar response for, you know, just like having guys practice disrupting the run up of, of the guy that they were, right. they were marking. But I think that, you know, that's the idea of like, of anticipating the things that like, I hope that guys will learn it. I should assume that they, they will struggle with things because struggle is natural if we're learning challenging things. And then I want to be ready to not just, you know, do it again and shout at them that they need to be more motivated and they need to learn it, but actually change the drill to help them learn it better. And ideally then even track those things. I think the next thing that happens if you write down the errors is you put them on a clipboard and as your team is playing, I saw Tony Lepore do this at a uh, uh, at a, a session for you know one of the like I think it's the U U fourteen or U fifteen national team. You know, it's just like they were he was looking at regional players to evaluate them, and so it's like a triangle passing drill. And he's got notes in his pocket on what he wants to see during this drill. I'm sure he knows <laughs> what what good triangle passing looks like, but he's ticking as he sees guys not open up their hips or whatever it is that you know like he's ticking it off on his list. So then when he stops, he knows which 
which mistake guys are making and what he needs to address in the feedback at the stoppage or, you know, uh, so he's really treating it like data. And I just think that's one of the most profound insights that I've taken away from watching teachers in the classroom, which is that I have to think about watching players while they're, while, while they're training is one of the most important things that I do as a coach. And I have to think about that as, as a source of data. And if I want to think about it seriously as data, I have to track it. It's unreasonable to think that I'm going to watch 18 players work on an exercise for five or 10 minutes and remember at the end of it all the most crucial data points, what happened, what went wrong, what we did well, who struggled, who didn't. Uh, and therefore I won't give, I'm unlikely to give the right feedback. But if I track it and I write down who does it well, what our mistakes are or list our mistakes and tick them off as I see them, then I'm more likely to talk about the most productive thing, the common error at the stoppage. All right, as we uh, move towards the uh, latter stages of the book, we're with uh, Doug Lemoff, A Coach's Guide to Teaching. Uh, it's uh, culture. You know, that's a word you, you hear a lot of, and you, you spend yeah. time with the All Blacks, and I'm sure culture came up uh, when you were in New Zealand. But uh, building culture. And uh, you, you told me that you uh, you spent some time with Jesse Marsh, yeah. who uh, certainly has broken some barriers as an American coach in Europe with Salzburg. And... Uh, more noted here in the States for his uh, work with the New York Red Bulls. Uh, but, but tell us about uh, your conversation with him and how that helped form the chapter. Yeah. He was so incredibly generous with his time. Uh, so first year, you know, just a uh, uh, thank you to him. He's, you know, everyone I've spoken to who's worked with Jesse just talks about his, his incredible generosity, which I think is relevant because I think he, he really wants to intentionally build a culture that is about who we are and how we interact as, as a group. And I think one of the most powerful tools that he, you know, that he addresses is the power of words that he wanted to, to shape the mindsets of his players when he arrived at, at Red Bulls. And so he would tell them stories about things. So he told them this story about Roger Bannister and how, you know, everyone for years thought um, the four minute mile was an impossible physio physiologically could not be broken by a human being. And, you know, Roger Bannister trained to do it for years. He broke it. And within a year of him, you know, within, within a year of him breaking it, like, you know, six or seven other guys also broke the record. And so they talked about how this made us realize that what we thought were our physical limitations were not our physical limitations, but they were only our perception of them. And once we'd broken through them, we would find, you know, how much greater we we're possible of, how much more we we're capable of. And so... Roger Bannister became code for that whole story. And they would talk about like, we need a little Roger Bannister here, right? That was a phrase that the team, you like, okay, 10 minutes to go. It's time, you know, it's Roger Bannister time. So putting words on things that are important shapes culture in a really profound way. And there's a whole vocabulary, both of like sociocultural things that they did. They defined, he, want, he, he wants his teams to work and you've seen him press, like they're, they're incredible. And so he, he's like, empty the tank is one of his phrases. And he asked the team to define what it meant to empty the tank. And they got together and they defined it. And it meant, you know, giving your best, even when it doesn't, even when you, on days when you don't feel it, you know, for the other guys in the team. And then they, they use that phrase consistently to talk about their obligation to each other. But he also did the same thing technically and technically. And so he invented all these terms for the ways that he wanted players to play, uh, especially on the defensive side of the ball. And that allowed him them to, to measure them. Like when guys did things like um, uh, for checking, you know, he has, which is for like preventing uh, in the, in the offensive third, preventing uh, a player from, you know, 
a player from turning and having options with the ball. And so they would then start to measure these things, not only in the games and reward them and, and thank guys for doing the, what is until you've named this an immeasurable thing, then they would develop video clips around it. But then they started to measure it in practice too, right? The way to get guys to do it in the game, if you just shout at guys to do something in the game, unless they've done it consistently in practice, it's not going to happen. And so they would start reinforcing these things in practice. And he really built this very powerful culture of, culture of measurability around the things that he valued technically and socially uh, in a way that's super sophisticated. And I describe a lot of that in, in this chapter. Um, so he did this. Uh, so he's worked in similar ways, both with New York Red Bulls and Red Bull Salzburg. I mean, that that's yeah. he's he's introduced that in both places. Yeah, I think it's different. You know, I think I think one of the interesting things about the culture chapter is that it talks about this sort of duality of the coach has the, the culture has to be driven by the coach. You know, Bielsa says, um, I don't know if you've seen this, this series about, about, about on uh, Netflix about Bielsa, or maybe it's on Amazon about Bielsa at Leeds and, you know, in the two years before they were promoted, but yes, he has this beautiful quote about, you know, like a coach has to advocate for the things that he believes in. He has to try and shape a culture around the things that he believes in, but, and so you have to shape the culture emphatically, but it also has to be theirs in the sense that players have to be bought into it and believe that it reflects and shapes them. And it has to be responsive to their, you know, every team is different. And so I think Jesse also talks about the fact that like the things that Red, that Red Bulls needed when he arrived, there are different from the things that they needed at Salzburg. And so he has to have a clear vision of what he wants, but then figure out how to adapt it to the team needs and to the players so that the players see themselves. So, so the culture becomes a shared thing, right? It's partly yours as a coach and it's partly the players. And so it's always different in every, you know, in every application. Um, and, you know, he's, he's just a very profound guy. And I think he just, he talks about that really um, compellingly. I remember watching uh, an interview with uh, coach K Mike Chachevsky at Duke. It was years ago, but uh, this, this seems to be how, you might develop a culture within your program because, and there's been a lot of discussion about failure and mistakes and how that's a positive and can work in a positive way, but that has to be in your culture. What coach K used to say is next play. If you make a mistake on to the next play. Uh, if you do an unbelievably great thing, next play. I mean, it's just, so you're, you're that you're always in tune. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great example. <laughs> just the, the fact, I mean, Coach K is really doing what Jesse Marsh did there, which is like deciding the behaviors that we want and then naming them uh, so that they're memorable to players and we can identify them and we can and we can share them. And I think, you know, interestingly, Jesse talks about the same thing, which is not being afraid to fail. Uh, and, you know, that like if you're afraid to fail, you're constrained and you're risk averse and you will never be great. You know, you will, <laughs> you will never you, you may avoid disaster, but you will never be great. Um, and so I just think there's a lot of overlap between that story about coach K. I wish I had that story from coach K for the book, but, uh, maybe in, maybe in version two, I'm always here to help Doug. I'm I appreciate that. Well, he's Crooks and Lamov. <laughs> <laughs> uh, coach's guide to teaching, uh, from, uh, Doug Lamov. I've been called. Why didn't you correct me? It's, it's not Lemov. It's Lamov. I mean, it's whatever you want it to be. Believe me, whatever you, whatever you do to it, someone's done worse. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I, I, maybe I'll stick with Lemoff since that's what I've called you for Fair like enough. five years now. But uh, again, the book is a coach's guide to teaching. I, I, I can't recommend it more enough for 
for those in the in the coaching community. And if you're listening and you have a friend that's a coach or somebody in your family that's a coach, uh, and you know, I know it's uh, it's the holiday period and you're looking for a book, but the, the, this one is uh, is one that they'll thank you for, no question about it, Doug. Uh, look, it's a fascinating look at uh, at at our profession, coaching. I know this. I know you 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 uh, you focus on soccer, but it's really something that could be, you know, worthy of any anybody who's who's uh, uh, in a leadership position that we're teaching, you know, is vital. So uh, thank you for sharing it, and I know that we'll talk again soon. Thanks, Glenn. I really enjoyed it.